Welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher in Utah, and I want to change the mental health game. The Therapy Thoughts Podcast is all about breaking down therapy-related topics and making mental health information easy to understand and super accessible. So join me for quick and direct educational episodes and some deeper dives with experts from around the world. Together, we are going to break down stigma. We're going to help each other make peace with mind, body, and food. We're going to make therapy cool and invest time in our mental health. Let's do it here, one therapy thought at a time. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe, clinical mental health counselor, coming at you live. I'm in Utah. Today, we are going to dive into two eating disorders. More specifically, I want to talk to you about anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I interview a lot of specialists in the eating disorder world because I recovered from anorexia, bulimia, and orthorexia about 15 years ago. Um, and I work with a lot of folks with disordered eating. And so this is a recurring theme and I have yet to dive into anorexia and bulimia, but if you're wanting, you know, some, some other information about eating disorders, I got you covered. We have an old podcast episode dedicated to orthorexia. There's a early podcast episode about eating disorders in general I did a podcast episode a couple episodes back on binge eating disorder, and so you can get all of the information you need, as well as an entire episode dedicated to helping a loved one with an eating disorder. So we got you covered, but today I want to go deeper into anorexia and bulimia and tell you everything I know. Now, a little review. There's a couple different things that are common among all eating disorders, okay? We deal with concerns about weight, body dissatisfaction, and eating problems. So weight concerns, body dissatisfaction, eating problems occur along a continuum or dimension. So day-to-day people who are just living under this culture that really values dieting and weight loss, we're all going to have, you know, concern to a certain degree about eating, body, and weight. When you have an eating disorder, we cross this spectrum into a a place where there is a lot of personal distress, there's impairment in functioning, and it affects relationships around you, and it's going to be outside the norm. It goes beyond the quote-unquote normal impact that we see in diet culture on weight, body, and eating and it becomes disordered. Now, how we measure that in the mental health world, I've talked about in other podcasts, but essentially, if we statistically lay this out, you're falling outside that general bell curve. What that means is you're kind of on the outskirts. Not every human deals with this. True, we all fall on the spectrum. We all have symptoms of mental illness or mental health struggles. It's just to what degree? So when it it comes to eating disorders, we cross out of the mild, medium, or even severe into disordered. So I want to describe what that looks like when you have anorexia first, and then I'll go into bulimia. So people with anorexia nervosa, 
there is an intense fear of gaining weight. There's a deeply internalized fear of fat, fat phobia. Now, all of us living in diet culture have internalized fat phobia because the culture around us really reinforces that. It says we'll die if we have too much fat in our bodies and the obesity epidemic and all of this stuff that we know that is stigmatizing and problematic and just not true is intense in someone with anorexia nervosa. There is a disturbance in the way that they view their body shape and weight. Uh, sometimes people with anorexia lose their periods if they're females and they have a period. Other times they don't lose their periods. Um, some folks with anorexia are in small body sizes. Other folks are in larger body sizes. So let me say this before we move forward. You don't have to be female. You don't have to be thin. You don't have to look emaciated to have anorexia nervosa. Any gender, any race, any sex, any body size can have anorexia nervosa. People with anorexia nervosa are not determined by body size. What determines this is the impairment in functioning and symptomology around weight, food, and body dissatisfaction, okay? So people with anorexia have this intense dissatisfaction with their bodies. There's this intense fear of gaining weight. So there's this drive to seek thinness and they're looking for ways to reduce their weight. So avoidance of food and restriction is the hallmark of anorexia. Uh, this is, there, there's different subtypes of anorexia, but the restricting behavior is the basis for one subtype. There is the restrictive type. Okay. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, when you're restricting it, it's focusing purely on not eating certain types of foods, avoiding foods, cutting out entire food groups. This restricting is one major subtype of anorexia. Other folks with anorexia nervosa, they are trying to control weight by purging. So purging means you're trying to get rid of food or bodily fluids and then thus weight. This can be done through self-induced vomiting, misusing laxatives, diuretics, performing enemas. So you can still have the major focus in anorexia nervosa be trying to manipulate weight while using purging behaviors. Uh, that's the second subtype of anorexia. So you have this restricting subtype and then this, you know, this purging subtype. So people with anorexia, they, they're going to have a really strong misperception about how they look. Um, they're going to have a really distorted view of their body, regardless of how others may perceive that or the number on the scale or what their labs are telling us about you know, the levels of their electrolytes or their body mass index, all of these markers, even their EKGs could say their heart rate is far too low. There's going to be this misperception of self. Uh, people with anorexia, they don't really, you know, the fear or the seriousness of the physical condition or the pursuit of low weight doesn't override just this fear of fat and, uh, the pursuit of thinness. Some folks can become emaciated, but not everyone does. You can literally have any shape and deal with this debilitating, serious mental illness. 
Um, there's a high risk of dehydration, low blood pressure, anemia, kidney dysfunction, cardiovascular problems, dental problems, electrolyte imbalance, osteoporosis, and death. What I want to say about anorexia nervosa is when we look at mental illness, this is the mental illness with the second highest mortality rate of all mental illness. And this is very recent, only within the last couple of years because of the opiate crisis that has arisen in our country. So opioid abuse and dependence has become the mental illness struggle with the highest mortality rate. Anorexia is now the second highest. It's a very serious disease and people struggling with this absolutely need help. And I'm not talking like just go to therapy every once in a while. You're going to want a full team approach where you are working with an eating disorder specialist and a treatment team. Oftentimes this looks like going to a higher level of care than just like your typical outpatient therapist once a week, right? You have a therapist, you're going to have a dietitian, you're going to have a medical staff, people taking labs, getting that EKG, getting those electrolyte levels, making sure you're medically stable. Uh, this can be years long treatment. It's, it's an intense recovery process and it's possible. Let me talk about bulimia as an introduction. Bulimia nervosa is different in that it is marked by binge eating episodes, which is, you know, large amounts of food consumed in short amounts of time compared to like the typical person eating far beyond your fullness. And then you're using compensatory ways or methods to prevent weight gain because of those binging episodes. People really evaluate themselves based on their body shape and their weight when it comes to bulimia. So binge eating means you're eating an amount of food in a limited time that's a lot larger than most people would eat. And then you are doing something, a quote unquote, inappropriate method or, or compensating for that in any type of behavior like compensatory behaviors would be vomiting, purging, laxatives, diuretics, enemas, and then there's non-purging compensatory behavior. So that's like fasting, fasting for several days um, or, or exercising or doing things that like that in excess. So something really interesting about bulimia, what we have found in the research is we all have within our brains and bodies something called endogenous opioids. Those are bodily chemicals that reduce pain. They enhance positive mood. They suppress appetite. And we have found in studies that low levels of endogenous opioids promote food cravings and thus may be characterized in people with bulimia nervosa. This isn't a choice. No one chooses to develop anorexia nervosa. No one chooses to develop bulimia nervosa. It's a disease that is biological social, psychological, spiritual. And I want to keep talking to help you understand what I mean when I say that. So a couple other things that I want to talk about. So these eating disorders affect all kinds of people. This isn't a rich, thin, white woman disease. And that's one of the biggest myths out there that prevent people from getting help. This can affect anyone. 
And remember, anorexia specifically has this high rate of mortality. So we don't want to leave anyone ignored here. People are dying from the medical implications of this suicide. It's starvation. It's a really serious mental illness that affects everyone. And there's so much stigma with eating disorders and so much blame on the person dealing with it that I hope this education helps today. Uh, a lot of people with anorexia nervosa, they can improve and totally recover. Some people don't recover. And that's for a lot of different reasons. Accessibility, stigma. There's a lot of stigma and fat phobia still in you know treatment. Um, we have a lot of work to do. But people who do seek treatment for anorexia generally have good here's the stats for outcomes. Good outcomes would be about 27, 28% of patients. Intermediate would be about 25. Poor would be about 39. And then uh, the outcomes or deceased clients would be like 7 to 8%. So we want to get treatment early. We want to get treatment soon. We want good informed treatment for these folks. Uh, we see that people with bulimia nervosa, they tend to have you know, quote unquote, better outcomes in treatment and can have more symptom free long periods. Um, and they have higher, higher rates of recovering, you know, over time. Some people with bulimia, however, have a more chronic course where symptoms do persist. So I want to keep it real. These are serious, but in both cases, people can fully recover. Now, what does that mean? It depends on who you talk to and how we define that. I think the goal is you are free of the symptomology of these diseases and you can have a peaceful, harmonious relationship with mind, body, and food. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, especially when you look at social justice, access to treatment, stigma and treatment. Are we treating you know patients equally and and fairly based on their body size? I, I mean, you know, over the years, I hear horror stories from people. If you go into treatment with a bigger body size, you're not getting the same treatment as others in a smaller body size. So we have to kind of unwind the stigma, even within the eating disorder recovery community. Recovery is going to be much more possible for more people as we call that out and as we take that on. So how do we treat this stuff? The standard, I mean, what we have 25 minutes, 30 minutes together. So this is just raw, fast, and dirty. Cognitive behavior therapy for bulimia nervosa will show elimination of the binge eating and purging in 25 to 80% of cases. Cases Now, that's a big span. But CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is a you know kind of the standard of care. And then people who seek treatment for bulimia, about 45% show full recovery. And then considerable improvement would be about 27%. And then other people who have a chronic course or they cross over to another eating disorder, that's about 28%. But the research is pretty promising that CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is more effective than medication or other psychological treatments for bulimia nervosa. Now, medication used with psychological treatment is very effective. But if you're not taking meds, we want you doing at least CBT. But if you're combining like an SSRI with meds, or sorry, an SSRI with therapy, that's the bomb. That's what we're trying to go for. 
Now that alone, we know there's a lot of trauma crossover and dual diagnosis with eating disorders. So CBT alone isn't going to cut it. Dialectical behavior therapy is really effective in eating disorder treatment. That's DBT, where you're learning mindfulness and distress tolerance skills. And you're learning emotional regulation skills and interpersonal effectiveness skills. So DBT would really complement that as well. But then if you're needing trauma-specific treatment, the research really supports EMDR or brain spotting, more trauma specific to help get to the root cause, healing that nervous system, helping you regulate. Um, an eating disorder can be a way that we deal when we're dysregulated. So when you're in trauma, if you're kicked out of the your tolerance window for you know your emotions, you're kicked into fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn. Pause, stop. I mean, I need to do a podcast on everything I'm talking about, but just for the sake of education, the eating disorder symptoms are a way to self-soothe and try to regulate when you're kicked out of your window of tolerance, when you are unable to regulate on your own. So that trauma treatment would also be really effective. But regardless, you got to work with somebody who knows about eating disorders because they are a specialization. They are tricky. There's a lot to it. And you got to have that medical stability up front. So anyone who comes to my office, I'm an outpatient clinic, They have to go get labs done with an eating disorder specialty clinic who can show me their EKG, make sure their heart is healthy. They can show me their blood work. We can make sure they're stable. I don't want them to die when they walk out of my office. We want to keep them safe. So that medical stability is crucial. And a lot of my clients can't work with me. I tell them they have to go to a higher level of care in order to stay safe, to stay alive, to get medically stable. And then I'm honest, you know, if... I can only see them once a week if my schedule would even allow that. And most people need far more treatment than that. The group therapy, the one-on-one therapy, the work with a dietitian. So it's a whole holistic approach. Um, let's see. When, when does this stuff onset? For anorexia, age of onset typically peaks around 15 to 19. Um We also know that the lifetime prevalence rate for anorexia is about 0.9%. The prevalence rate for men is about one-tenth that of women. If you are getting lost in all the numbers I'm saying, head over to the nationaleatingdisorders.org website and you can get all like the research on stats on eating disorders. Um, They break down the disorders and their statistics you know, one by one, and you can read about all the different disorders on there. You can look up specifically the health consequences of anorexia, the health consequences of bulimia. You can get the stats and you can get advice. You can take an assessment. Um, I think it's still a great resource to utilize. So yeah, if you're getting lost in these numbers, prevalence rates for eating disorders may seem low based on what I just said, but many people have eating disorders and don't ever get a formal diagnosis because our freaking culture says that it's okay to do these behaviors. We praise disordered eating. We encourage dieting, which sets you up. One in four people will go on to develop a full-blown eating disorder. So we know about 6% of undergraduate women will have concerns about anorexia or bulimia. And then, you know, 25 to 40% are going to say they have moderate problems regarding you know, their weight and worry about body image and lack of control around food. 
Um, and then you add, you know, the stigma males with eating disorders, they're not as studied, they're missed. Um, eating disorders are on the rise among male athletes, especially in sports with like this leanness competition, like wrestling, rowing, boxing, ski jumping, stuff like that. And so again, this doesn't discriminate based on anyone. These diseases can happen to lots of different types of people. Racial ethnic gaps and eating disorders among Americans aren't as great as you think as they, they would be. Um, they're also highly comorbid with other mental disorders. I mentioned this earlier, but you're going to see comorbid, meaning co-occurring or happening with. So you're going to have an eating disorder and a mood disorder like depression or anxiety disorders or body dysmorphic disorder. So there's a lot of crossover here. But I got to tell you about the stigma because this makes me so mad. Studies have shown that when we, when we study to see if we should be blaming people with eating disorders or not, you know what people think. About 20% of men and 24% of women in this one study in the UK said they knew someone with an eating disorder and they felt that people with eating disorders are to blame for their problems and they could just pull themselves together if they chose to. Because people view eating disorders as self-inflicted or related to willpower. And this is a consequence of our cultural conditioning. We've all been told like dieting and weight, all you got to do is like cut food and like that's that. This, this same type of stigmatized view has been replicated in American surveys. So we know there's a lot of stigma around eating disorders and that's problematic. It's, it prevents people from getting help. But when you look at eating disorders versus alcoholism versus depression, we are seeing strong stigma related to eating disorders. People are going to view eating disorders as if they are to blame um, on the person, that they can't pull themselves together, that treatment won't help, that there's no way they could fully recover, that they're hard to talk to or unpredictable. And I'm here to tell you that's BS. These diseases are real, and I'm going to share some of the science right here, right now. We can map out and tell you specifically that there are biological risk factors for eating disorders. Genetics play a role in this. There is modest heritability when you look at anorexia and bulimia. Genetic influencers are going to be stronger for certain subtypes of eating disorders, especially when you look at the restricting subtype of anorexia. But we, we have done studies that are attempting to identify genetic markers for eating disorders. There's inconsistent results, but what we can point out is the drive for thinness. The drive for thinness, which is a key component of these disorders may be linked to genes on chromosomes one, two, and 13. We have also identified brain features, the lateral hypothalamus. This leads to weight and appetite changes in animals. And we know that damage to that part of our brain can impact eating disorder function in humans. We've also seen other studies that focus on the connection between that lateral hypothalamus to the amygdala. And this connection in humans is related to that learned cues that override feelings of fullness and promote more eating. We see that, that this is, this is happening for folks. 
we also have seen the nucleus accumbens has been implicated in eating disorders because that brain structure is linked to the lateral hypothalamus and sensory pleasure from food. Gosh, I'm getting so nerdy here. I'm talking about the brain. But what I'm telling you is this isn't some like cute choice. This isn't like, oh, I just want to be skinny and like I'm vain. This is a real disease that we are able to map out in humans and see there's other brain regions, the prefrontal cortex, the orbital frontal. Um, we know anything related to rewarding aspects of food are, and play a part in eating. Those are related to eating disorders. So there's also neurochemical features in anorexia and bulimia. The neurotransmitter, neurotransmitter that's most closely linked is serotonin. We know serotonin influences our mood regulation, our obsessive thinking, impulsivity, and eating behavior. It's also responsible for are you satiated when you eat, that feeling of fullness from eating. This is related to serotonin. And so we know that people with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa are characterized by reduced serotonin activity. We also see a reduced responsivity to serotonin-stimulating meds. So we see this like serotonin dysfunction connected. We see this common people with other disorders, my friends. This is connected to like compulsivity, obsessive thinking, depression, all of that. Dopamine, another big hitter you've heard of, another neurochemical that plays a role in eating disorders because dopamine is linked to pleasurable aspects of food as well as motivation to obtain food. So if you're having dysfunction in your serotonin or dopamine systems, this can lead folks to be less motivated to obtain food, specifically with anorexia, while the opposite would be true for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorders. Guess what else influences this? Personality traits, which we don't freaking pick. Perfectionism. Perfectionism is often cited as one of the greatest risk factors for eating disorders, especially among when you among people with that obsessive drive for thinness. Those two are like a really perfect storm there. We also see folks with anorexia, they have a fixed or rigid thought pattern related to this ideal body type. And where do you think that freaking comes from? The culture. So there's a huge environmental pool of scum that is affecting eating disorders, environmental risk factors. So you combine genetics and environment, and that's a mental illness, folks. Family factors. If you have a family who has reinforced you know, the thin ideal or diet culture, that's a risk. If there is an insecure attachment style, that's a risk. A family history of trauma or abuse, media exposure to this thin idea, this diet culture, um, all of these influence, you know, the drive for thinness, the, the dieting culture, the fat phobia, you combine that with these genetic factors and we see, you know, eating disorders. What causes eating disorders? That's not a simple answer. Nothing in, you know, mental illness or mental health is a perfect cause or effect. But what I hope you leave listening, leave with listening to this is the biological, the psychological, the environmental. You combine this and that can lead to the development. You got to check my other podcasts on what to do for someone if you're worried about them. Listen to my interviews with other experts and me talking about treatment. But make sure you reach out for help. Silence fuels this disease. Secrecy keeps us sick. Be brave. Make that call. Tell on yourself. Bring it up if you're worried about someone. 
treatment can help. We know that we need a lot more education in our country related to mental illness in general, but especially eating disorders and the stigma. This is not your fault. It's not your fault if your loved one with someone struggling. It's not your fault if you are struggling. I've been there. And I'm telling you, I've recovered. And I believe in recovery. And there's a lot we need to do to make it accessible and possible for every single human who's ever suffered with this. But you got to go for it. We got to seek recovery. We know it's possible. Let's keep going for it. Um, eating disorders are serious stuff. Thanks for tuning into this. Again, you can check out my Instagram for more resources around this. Check out uh, the National Eating Disorders Association. There's so much more we could say about these disorders. Um, I really am passionate about helping us overcome this. And so that's why I'm dedicated to fighting diet culture. That's why I'm an intuitive eater. Um, that's why I want to spread the messages of health at every size. I mean, there's so much we have to unlearn being in this culture that just freaking praises disordered eating. It kills folks. We got to fight this. We got to do better around this education. So share this episode with someone who wants to get a serious anorexia bulimia 101 crash course. Uh, there's a lot more I could say. If you are wanting to dive deeper, I have an eating disorder recovery course in my school at tiffanyrow.com. Check out the podcast. There's tons of resources here. There's a ton of you know, content on my Instagram, but you are not alone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, may you be well, fam. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well. Thanks for listening to the Therapy Thoughts podcast, but remember, this podcast is not therapy. This is for general informational purposes only. The information on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, illness, or disease. This also isn't intended to be financial, legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. Make sure you're always working with your own personal licensed mental health counselor. May you be well.